Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. SB Nation and Underdog Dynasty present the Underdog Podcast. All right, welcome to another edition of the Conference USA podcast on underdogdynasty.com, SB Nation's home for G5 football. Uh, Joe Lonergan and Eric Henry here with you once again. Excited to dive into uh, a little bit lighter slate from last week in terms of games, uh, but we're going to make up for it in A, we have a much deeper slate of games coming up this weekend, and B, lots of realignment news to get to. So, Eric, I I know it's a rare week where the the off-the-field storylines kind of overshadowed everything that was going on on the field in CUSA. Joe, old buddy, old pal. Um, Have you been able to keep keep everything straight as far as where we're at from last week to this? I know it's certainly been a challenge for me, just wondering – what has changed from the last time we spoke and what we kind of need to go ahead and get ahead of the game in terms of taping for this week's podcast, because quite frankly, this thing, I, I remember Joe, you had said that, uh, you know, maybe we can go back and revisit this in a, another, <laughs> you kind of said like another 10 years, we'll be able to revisit right. some of the realignment talk. And, and I'd said, yeah, maybe another 10 weeks. Little did we know we wouldn't have another 10 days <laughs> until there'd be more news. So plenty to dive into and uh, yeah, we'll, we'll, for the time being, we know who's in Conference USA, and we can talk about the things on the field, but certainly plenty to talk about off the field as well. I know. like By the time that we A, release this episode, there's going to be some more concrete news, uh, especially. And like who knows? By the time we you know get to, to Friday, because we usually record these on a Tuesday, like who knows how much more news we're actually going to get regarding the future of Conference USA specifically. So it's, it's crazy how quickly things are moving in uh, – you know, in this day and age, but it's wild. <laughs> yeah, I, I just all I'll add to that, Joe, is uh, we can blame Oklahoma and Texas for this. I mean, I, I blame Oklahoma and Texas for, for most things nowadays, <laughs> unfortunately, but welcome to 2021. <laughs> uh, diving into the first game of last week's slate on Thursday night, FAU uh, really took care of business against the Charlotte 49ers, 38-9. to Nikosi Perry, three touchdowns touchdowns through the air along with 225 yards on just nine completions uh, pretty efficient day uh, for that FAU offense uh, spreading the ball around in that regard uh, Victor Tucker kind of the offensive leader for the Charlotte 49ers with six catches and 105 yards but that being said uh, not really the best day for Charlotte as they they lose at home and get blanked in the second half yeah this was one Joe that we spoke about in last week's episode, as far as really being a, a, a litmus test for both teams in the East, right? And here's one of the things that I think you would agree with this statement that for better or worse, FAU is the most talented team in CUSA. And those of you listening might say, well, where's the worst part about that? The worst being the most talented team in CUSA is four and three. And at times when they look helpless, they look completely helpless. You look at the Air Force game and, you know, they've had slow starts against Georgia Southern and Fordham and others. But this may have been their most complete game of the year. 
the FIU game, that's a team FIU is struggling. Anyone who follows CUSA knows that, right? So to go to Charlotte, Jerry Richardson Stadium, national TV spotlight um, against a team that, again, at the time was leading all of Conference USA, or excuse me, uh, CUSA East, solid performance. I guess the thing that, that I am most curious of, Joe, is for Charlotte, Chris Reynolds, his stat line, 22 of 31, 219, that's a basic Chris Reynolds stat line. Like you can almost pick and plug that into any Charlotte game, but it never felt like their offense truly got going. Right. And for all the things you can say about him, and we've used all those intangibles that almost come off like pejoratives in a sense, when you call a guy gritty and a gamer and all those things, right. It it, it doesn't, (laughs) the flip side of that would be calling someone like super talented and someone who can make all the plays and whatnot. And I, I don't use those, those adjectives to kind of denigrate Chris Reynolds as much as doesn't feel like to you, Joe, for better or worse, if he can generate big plays downfield and big plays with the offense, they're going to have a chance. But for the most part, this stat line, you can pick and plug in, in, in certain any Charlotte game, and they're either going to win or lose this way. It doesn't seem as if there's much more of a ceiling than what we've seen. Does that make sense? I, I think so. I'll agree with your point that, you know, obviously the deep ball plays a big part in what Charlotte tries to do. And, and how could it not with uh, Vic Tucker and Grant DeBose both in that offense and what they bring as far as a skill set and B just physical attributes. Um, but yeah, you know, with, with Chris Reynolds, um, the two interceptions in this game, like as, as solid as a day as he had 22 of 31, that that's obviously an issue, but at the same time, you know, I, I think when you talk about what he brings, it, it kind of just unfortunately highlights how, you know, unbalanced Charlotte can be at times in their offensive attack. Like you look at their rushing game, they only had 77 yards in this contest against FAU. And when we talk about like what it takes to be a contender in CUSA the last few years, you know, balanced offense is usually uh, towards the top of that conversation, as we refer to with, with Western Kentucky several times. So, um, definitely an issue for Will Healy's team. And here's, here's the thing that, you know, has me thinking about Charlotte moving forward when Chris Reynolds is gone. um, You know, I'm sure Will Healy has a plan for that, but it's going to be fascinating to see how they move on from a guy who's, you know, uh, contributed so much to that offense and to that locker room in the last few years. No, listen, the, the things that he brings in terms of intangibles, you can't question, right? But and again, this is just a question. And, you know, we may see it two different ways, which is perfectly fine. I know for normal listeners, it's rare that we disagree. But here's my point. It was a 9-7 ball game in half. And that game was more, more than open for the taking for Charlotte because it was the type of game that makes FAU fans' stomach just churn in the sense that they, again, have not been able to play a full four quarters of football in really any game this year outside of the FIU game. And again, FIU isn't beating anybody. I haven't won an FBS game in over two years. So for Charlotte, and again, I'm, listen, when you, as you mentioned, what's it, the 20-something, 32 carries with 77 yards, uh, Calvin Camp, 7 for 38, Chadrick Bird, 9 for 19. So it wasn't like they had much going in the run game, right? And a lot of that, you got to give credit to guys like Evan Anderson and really stout FAU defense, right? So I, I, w- I want to at least give them kudos in that regard. But a 9-7 game at half, it almost feels like, if you have a quarterback who's a little bit more capable of producing those big plays and not kind of just 
again, I don't want to sound like I'm I'm being difficult on Chris Reynolds, but this stat line, like 22 of 31 for, you know, between 200 and 260, 270, and, you know, and, and, and wins a couple touchdowns and you don't get the picks, but in losses, it's just kind of this. And I, I just wonder if at four and three, Charlotte can still do all the things they want to reach a bowl game. Hell, they can still win this division. So I don't want to sound like for them all gloom and doom. But it just wonders, again, if you get back to that ceiling thing where uh, I'll put it to you this way, Joe. And, and if, you know, again, feel free. If you see it differently, that's fine. And, you know, we can revisit this in a few in, you know, at the end of the year. Doesn't it feel like to you if I just said Nikosi Perry, nine of 11 for 225 and three scores versus Chris Reynolds stat line? You don't feel that there's much more that's going to come out of Chris Reynolds stat line. Whereas with Nikosi Perry, you could make the argument that he could be a 400 yard passing threat at any time, right? Are, you're asking about Perry or of Reynolds? Of being I'm, I'm asking if you, if you, I'm asking if you make the comparison, right? When you look at both of their stat lines, you don't think you're going to get much more than what you got out of Chris Reynolds. Just let's look at the stat line alone. Whereas if you look at Nikosi Perry, you can make the, at least it feels to me as if you're dealing with a quarterback who th- there's still much more in his ceiling that he could be as great as a nine of 11 for 225 is. He could just as easily, if needed, if that's what was needed for his team to win the game, go 30 of 48 for 450 and a couple scores. Yeah, no, I I can see that. Like, my point was never that Chris Reynolds was the problem with with Charlotte. I think really the issue for them in this game was defending the run, as it has been for the majority of the season. I mean, when you look at, uh, you know, Perry's day, like an average of, of 20 and a half yards per completion, like obviously that's that's a testament to how well they made Charlotte respect the run, which opened up the ball downfield. So, I mean, yes, Chris Reynolds, I, I this isn't a horrible day for him. It's just kind of an off day that, that made them, you know, take some risks after getting down uh, so significantly in the third quarter. All right, well, moving on, we will move into the Friday game. Not much to say about this result, but uh, we do need to cover every result from last weekend in CUSA. Uh, Middle Tennessee and UConn. It's funny, Jared made the joke on Twitter, like, do I hate myself enough to watch this game? And um, I did as well. So Middle Tennessee gets this victory, 44-13 to over UConn. Chase Cunningham, 25 of 36 for 297 yards and four touchdowns in this game. Uh, you know, I, I got to give it up to Martel Petway as well. Uh, not the most productive day in terms of yardage, but he looked really hard to tackle out there and, and did the job that uh, his team needed him to do. And there's not much else you can say about this just because UConn is very bad. Uh, one and six or one and eight rather to start the year uh, and one and four at home. So, you know, who knows where that program's going. But for, for Middle Tennessee, I think your takeaway is this. Stay the course in terms of offense. Let Chase Cunningham continue to develop into the kind of quarterback that he's becoming. And uh, maybe fine-tune the defense a little bit. But I think MTSU's on the right track. Yeah, I mean, in terms of on the field, all the guys you needed for MTSU to show up, showed up and that's the reason why this was a blowout right read blankenship nine tackles two tackles for loss you know defends a couple uh, a couple passes recovers two fumbles as well so just adding to that read blankenship type of stat line that you look at the end of the year and you see 80 90 tackles and uh you know a couple picks 
a couple forced fumbles, a couple of uh, fumble recoveries. Greg Great, I believe, had six tackles and an interception this game, if memory serves me correct. And, of course, you mentioned the running game, the production of the running game with Martel Petway and Shatan Mobley combining for over 100 yards. Listen, I didn't say that to come from one person, but if you combine the numbers, 25 carries between Petway and Mobley, for 111 yards and a score. That's the type of reduction they need in the run game. Jimmy Marshall Hall's in two touchdowns. I want to fast forward, Joe, right? Let's take a look at this. So they take the tough loss to Charlotte by three uh, that you can't get back, right? Uh, that was on 9-24. But outside of that, they get the upset win over Marshall. They beat UConn. Look at the rest of the schedule. Southern Miss, Western Kentucky, FIU, ODU, FAU. You can make the argument, especially with the fact that they have Southern Miss, FIU, and ODU at home. Joe, do you think they get to six? I do. Uh, I mean, I think they win at least two of those games that you just mentioned. Um, or that, And then that puts them at five wins. But yeah, I mean, I think they definitely beat Southern Miss. I think they beat FIU. And yeah, I think they beat Old Dominion. I think that's going to be a close game against Old Dominion, but yeah, I think they get to six, you know, which is funny considering, uh, you know, some of the thoughts that we had about this MTSU team back in like September when they uh, got, you know, blown out by Virginia Tech and uh, didn't look all that competitive against UTSA. But uh, yeah, this MTSU team is bounded in a, is a rebounded rather in a big way. Yeah. I mean, you talk about the feelings we had when they got blown by Virginia Tech. And of course, they, you know, they kind of held tough early on than, of course, the quarterback situation with Bailey Hockman choosing to leave football. But I also think, Joe, part of that is coming into the year, we thought Southern Miss would be a little bit better. Um, I know that we didn't pick them to beat Marshall. So just looking at it, I know I had Monmouth, UConn as wins. FIU, I believe I had as a loss. So I think I had them closer to four and eight. So the fact that they're staring at, you know, a legit possibility of six wins, all in all, I think you got to give Rick Stockstill credit. And I do think they get to six. I think they'll win the three games needed. Can't see them winning on the road at Western Kentucky or FAU, but I think they find a way to get it done. In agreement on that. And then we'll move into the Saturday slate. Uh, let's start off with uh, Liberty beating North Texas 35 to 26. Uh, Malik Willis, 12 of 18 for 217 yards and three touchdowns here. Uh, worth noting, he didn't play the whole game, which is why North Texas looked so competitive and uh, was leading in the first half, actually, uh, 20 to 14. Um, and then things kind of took over. Uh, you know, I, I think North Texas they are progressing as a team. They're getting a little bit better every week, but it's just not coming together quickly enough. Yeah. Okay. So I think they're progressing, right? I, I guess the reason I hesitate Joe is because they still are having issues keeping teams off of the scoreboard. And I don't know. And I'm actually really curious your thoughts on this. If you want to call this a progression or a regression, listen, I'm never going to, fault a team for finding a way to run the ball well and you know 60 carries for 242 yards that's four yards a pop right so you can make the argument as to whether that is well or not but you're never gonna you know shout down 242 yards of rushing it's just that this is such a departure from the north texas offense we'd seen when they were successful i don't know how to feel about that in terms of the fact that they yes it's great that deandre Torrey's there and they'll get oscar attaway back next year and this kid uh io adeye uh, seems to be a nice little pleasant find for them there. But I, to me, that has to come in conjunction with the way they were playing football during the time under Mason Fine, you know, when he was at quarterback and they were competing for bowl games and competing for a CUSA West Division title. So I just don't know. It, the one in six record, I mean, that obviously is an improvement. 
you get the five tackles in a sack and a second half from Deion Noville. That's nice, but you don't bring him back next year. The Murphy twins, it's good that you get a three sacks combined. I believe two and a half of those came from Grayson Murphy. The other half came from Gabriel Murphy. But I don't know, Joe. What do you think? I mean, am I am I just am I just being too harsh on North Texas? Because I, I it, I'm not saying a team that's known traditionally as a passing team has to only win that way. But when you have such a stark contrast from the time that gave you your most success on the Seth trail, and then kind of flipping the other way around while the passing attack still is isn't necessarily there, I don't know. That, that's, that's just it, it leaves me a little a, a little conflicted. It's a fair question and and one that I don't have really the answer to um, based on what I, you know, have watched out of North Texas the last few years. I definitely got that same impression that this was, you know, just that type of offensive system that that, you know, air raidy type system that that Mason Fine ran so well. But now with, you know, their proficiency in, in running the ball. It's it's interesting. I think it makes me think that, you know, maybe they're just making adjustments based on the staff that they the the rather the roster not 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 sure. the coaching staff that they have now as opposed to uh you know just kind of sticking with the system and going for it they're they're you know adapting to do what's best for the talent that they have but at the same time that's not really sustainable is it no i mean listen i think that's a solid point on your end right you know if you can't pass it you can't continue to just try to pass and it's not working right so you got to turn to the run you got to turn to the run but like you said, it just seemed like they'd kind of carved out a, I don't want to say sufficient is not the right word, but they'd carved out an offensive identity of, hey, this is what works for them. And to see such a stark contrast, even last year, they looked to be more of a proficient passing team. While not quite, uh, while, while not quite where they were with Mason Fine, they just looked to be a little more sufficient last year. And of course, the big thing, listen, we can, you know, maybe we're grasping at, at, at straws or, you know, whatever in terms of the offense, but defensively that has to change. And that <laughs> uh, doesn't matter if it's, you know, in years past or currently, they, they've got to get that fixed and that'll go a long way to getting them back in the winning, uh, kind of their winning ways. I should know this as I'm thinking of it, but what happened to Graham Harrell? Because he was their OC for a little bit with Mason Fine at the helm, wasn't he? I, yeah, Graham Harrell was at USC at last. Okay. At the end. okay, he's still, yeah, he's still the OC at USC. Right, okay, yeah. All right, that that makes sense. Um you know, obviously USC, um, they're trying to figure out where they're going is I believe they just fired uh, their head coach in, in Todd Helton. But uh, anyway, sidetracked. Uh, North Texas, a long way to go. Uh, we'll see if they can uh, figure out their offensive identity as the season uh, comes to, you know, the second half here. Uh, and then this is probably, you know, the big result that you know, all the people who pay very close attention to, to CUSA football were, were talking about this weekend, Eric Rice beating UAB 30 to 24. You know, we can talk about like the missteps for, for UAB along the way. I, I do want to point out, you know, uh, an unfortunate thing for UAB here. Uh, TD Marshall uh, done for the year. It would seem like uh, a corner um, due to an injury, uh, which is especially unfortunate since he came back for an extra season at UAB to kind of prove his worth uh, in the NFL. So that's that's unfortunate. Um, but back to Rice. Wiley Green gets an offensive player of the week nod for Rice, 17 to 22 for 205 yards and three touchdowns through the air. Uh, pretty, you know, running back by committee approach for Rice in the running game, which worked very well, uh, 141 yards on the ground on 48 carries. Um, 
and really just like standing tall when they needed to most against a, a UAB offense that, uh, you know, according to Mike Bloomgren, was overconfident. <laughs> yeah, we'll definitely come to that in a second. Joe, I can't let this one slide. I would normally let this one go, but you did say that uh, Todd Helton was fired at SC. I only bring that up only because I was a huge Todd Helton fan. Talk about a slugger. Uh, obviously, you met a uh, Clay Helton, but uh, it's all the same because Travis Helton. Uh, excuse me. Now, I, now I just mess it up. Tyson Helton is at uh, Western Kentucky, right? So I knew yes. you were going with that, but I, I couldn't pass up the opportunity to reference the great Colorado Rocky Todd Helton. Uh, as to, uh, look, 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 man, it's the, it's the World Series. Baseball's in everybody's mind. I feel like you can get past that one. No, listen, man. That was not a critique. I am all here for a Todd Helton reference. Uh, Todd Helton. Well, to bring it all back to college football, was the Tennessee starter before Peyton Manning. Little known fact at quarterback. Um, I did not know that. Wow. Okay. 100% fact. You can look it up, folks. Uh, as far as the on the field with Rice and UAB, listen, I'm absolutely uh, <laughs> completely shocked at the fact that Rice is able to go 17 of 22 for 205 in the passing game with Wiley Green against a UAB defense that, yes, they're banged up and you can only sustain a high level of defensive talent for so long when you're missing guys. And now you mentioned TD Marshall, add that to the list of guys who are now hurt, you know, and especially in that secondary, Chris Mole being gone as well. And others, you know, it can only have so many grace and cash pick sixes or, you know, block punts record and excuse me, recover in the end zone. That's not a consistent way of winning, but just the fact that they were able to get that level of, of passing proficiency, something that they hadn't done quite frankly, you know, all year against a really viable opponent was interesting. There was a reason they came to this game as a three score dog. So give them credit to upsetting UAB. This seemingly is a thing that Mike Bloomgren and Rice were able to do. And I don't know how you feel about this, Joe. I'm not comparing 2021 UAB to 2020 Marshall. What I am saying is that if UAB is going to win, it's a formula that is really spearheaded and led by good defense, followed by a strong rushing attack, and then timely plays in the passing game when needed. If you don't get that in, you know, I don't necessarily want to say in that order, but if you don't get that combination of things, it leaves UAB open to, you know, defeat. And with Marshall, you could make the same argument last year down the stretch that they were really led by their rushing game, which helped open up things uh, in the passing game for Grant Wells and then the defense. But if you don't get those things, it leaves you open to, to being beat and Rice has been able to do it. So do you see any similarity uh, at all? between their upset of Marshall last year and UAB this year? <laughs> a little bit, yeah. I mean, Mike Bloom going to kind of hit on the overconfidence thing. I think that definitely plays into it. Uh, also want to make note of, of this from UAB's performance on Saturday. 10 penalties for 108 yards. And, you know, while, while some folks uh, would, you know, say that some of those calls are questionable, especially down the stretch, if you want to win conference championships, as UAB has done, uh, you can't turn in those kind of performances. Um, and, you know, it, it's, you know, normally you don't think Rice is going to make you pay for that kind of mistake, but they absolutely did uh, in this case. So that's that's definitely part of it as well. But back to your question about, you know, them and Marshall, I think it's a little um, premature to like compare UAB to, you know, what Marshall did at the end of last season, because this is, you know, one game after all. But at the same time, like this game definitely had had notes of that. Um you know, some really unfortunate mistakes that they really shouldn't make as a, as a team that's, you know, been in high pressure situations time and time again. So, um, and, and particularly like rice converted five, fourth down, five, fourth downs on five attempts. So, you know, in particular, just 
you know, weren't ready to get it done in high pressure situations here. Listen, that's a great point you make in terms of converting five fourth downs. That's damn near unheard of to con- con- convert all five of those. But it also shows, and this we got to give credit to Mike Bloomgren, he was playing to win that game. So when he talks about the fact that, you know, maybe UAB underestimated them, that could be a fair um, assessment on his part. But I really love the aggression, the uh, assertive and aggressive style play calling on his part, which is saying, hey, you know, we're at the time a two-win team and we've got to try to do something to get things going. So kudos to Bloomgren and Rice. Yeah, you know, this is only Rice's third win, but it still makes me, you know, fascinated to see what else they can do with this season. Because they got a very winnable game against North Texas next week. Uh, and then I think they, they close the season with, again, a very winnable game against a, a underachieving Louisiana Tech team, which leaves Charlotte Western and UTEP. I wonder if they can get one of these games. You know, with, with Conference USA – it's interesting to see when the league is so, you know, competitive and everybody's getting to bull eligibility, but also at the same time, it means that, you know, from the outside, it, it gives a uh, impression that the league is mediocre, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> no. Yeah. That's, that's, that is a fair point. And, and, you know, MTSU and their bowl hopes, I don't see rice bowling, but uh, listen, stranger things have happened, right? That they have. I mean, stranger things happened this week, <laughs> really, with uh, with all the realignment stuff, which we'll get to. Um, with that, then let's let's jump back to uh, another result from this weekend that may or may not have caught some folks by surprise, depending on who you ask. With uh, UTSA and Louisiana Tech, uh, number twenty four Roadrunners, uh, now number twenty two, get that win forty five to sixteen uh, in Ruston uh, for. Uh, to spoil the Bulldogs' homecoming, unfortunately for them. Uh, Austin Kendall, 279 yards through the air, two touchdowns. Have to admire the way he battled. But at the end of the day, uh, I mean, this game was just (laughs) dominated by UTSA past the first quarter, really, with Sincere McCormick carrying the ball 23 times for 113 yards and three touchdowns. And then, you know, Zachary Franklin only had five touches, but – 118 receiving yards and two touchdowns. So really the big three of Zachary Franklin, Sincere McCormick and Frank Harris uh, were just really um, playing and fantastically in this game. And then uh, something that, you know, maybe gets overlooked by everybody, but the UTSA diehards five defensive touchdowns for this team. And that is tied with Ohio state for the highest total in that stat in all of FBS right now. So uh, Jeff Trailer's team has the momentum on their side uh, heading into a, a very important home stretch for them with a, an 8-0 record. You beat me to the defensive touchdown stat. I think that's important, Joe, because when you're talking about, and I'm going to sound like I'm getting into coach speak, but I think it's true. When you talk about things that bad teams do or things that average teams do, you can kind of measure them in a sense, right? If it's a bad team, it's timely turnovers, timely penalties it's not being able to score in the red zones things like that and we talk about average teams it's you know they aren't able to put together consistent back to back to back in terms of you know consistent play on the field in terms of three four weeks string them together right and playing good football consistently and then when you talk about great teams and listen there's still four games down the stretch that will determine whether or not utsa can earn that distinction of a great team and in my mind, even if they win three out of the next four, they're still earn that label of being great. But when you're able to score defensive touchdowns, that's when you earn that label, right? That's when you come in and it's like, man, that is a complete football team. 
And that's what UTSA has been able to do. So give credit to Jeff Trailer, and I will save you know the uh, <laughs> the talks about his future until the next part of this podcast when we talk about next week. So I'll just focus on the fact that since they're McCormick, three more touchdowns, certainly having a phenomenal year. Got to give a shout to Clarence Hicks. When he gets his sacks, they come in bunches. He had three of members. I think it might have been two against Memphis, two and a half here against Louisiana Tech. So all in all, a really good game for him. And when you look at the Tech side of things, just kind of a disappointing year overall for Skip Holtz. I mean, I know they've had some fluidity in terms of their quarterback situation. Austin Kendall's coming and played well. Uh, kind of a last minute, I don't want to say last minute, but he came in a little bit later than things were expecting. You know, of course, uh, exiting last season, you may have thought that Luke Anthony was going to be the guy and you know, Austin Kendall was able to get one more year of culture ball out of him, but just not enough elsewhere, right? Especially on the defensive side of the ball. They just are not a good defensive team, despite having some solid defensive talent in Ezekiel, Barnett, Trey Baldwin, uh, Tyler Grubbs, BJ Williamson, and others. But yeah, man, uh, all in all, it's just my overall, in just being impressed with UTSA in terms of the fact that one week it can be Frank Harris, one week it can be Sincere McCormick, one week it can be the defense, and then it can be the defense putting up points of their own. And that makes them a great team, and that's why they're ranked number 22 in the nation. Yeah, I mean, you know, UTSA has, has played, you know, nothing short of fantastically this season, and that's why they've kind of captured the, you know, attention in terms of, uh, you know, the G5 spotlight over the last uh, several weeks here do want to touch on, you know, tech one more time. You know, I, I think it's, it's easy to look at what tech's done this year and be disappointed. And, you know, people should be, they have a lot of talent on that offense and they definitely should have won more games than they have uh, going back to the beginning of the season. So many of them were, you know, by one score, but at the same time, like the news cycle over the last few weeks has had to have had some sort of toll on, at least the coaching staff. I mean, you know, Skip Holt sort of alluded to it. Um, and as we'll get into it, this is not the only uh, school, unfortunately, where this is the case. They really don't know what the next like couple months holds <laughs> for, for their, the future of their program and their athletic department. Yeah. You know what, Joe, and that's a really good point. And we should probably dive into that when we get to our middle section. You like to think that a lot of this talk, whether it's, you know, whether your coach could be there or not, or in this case, realignment talk, what that does to your, you talk about the fan base, what it does to your players, you'd like to, excuse me, you'd like to think that they'd be able to shut it out. But again, is that really humanly possible with dealing with players who are 18 to 23 years old? Probably not, right? Yeah, I mean, it's not, it's not the best situation mentally for for anybody involved, uh, truly. So Let's round out the recap with Western Kentucky and FIU. Uh, the Hilltoppers win this one in Miami, 34-19. to 19. Bailey Zappi, uh, typical day at the office for him, really. 39-49 for 382 yards, three touchdowns. Uh, you know, we when we talk about Western Kentucky's offense, we talk a lot about Bailey Zappi and how productive he's been, and for good reason. But, you know, I, I don't know how much um, love that that we really, you know, lay on Jareth Stearns for how big of a, a part of this offense he's been uh, showed it once again here, 14 catches for 115 yards and two touchdowns. So, uh, you know, Eric, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on, on the FIU side in terms of, you know, their performance on the field in this game, but uh, looked pretty competitive for most of the first half here. And then just, you know, kind of fell apart in the second half. Yeah. Well, listen, <laughs> Joe, I just gave you that kind of spiel, right. In terms of things that bad teams do, 
an issue for the Panthers all season long, A, has been playing decent, you know, half and change of football, but especially when it comes to end of halves and beginning of halves. FIU has either lost games coming out of halftime or entering halftime. And Western Kentucky was able to get a score entering the break. And of course, you're talking about an offense led by Bailey Zappi that is just so high powered. You knew you could only hold them down for so long. So the fact that this game was 6-0 after one, you almost felt like in one on, on one hand, you felt like, okay, FIU is really doing some things here to give themselves a chance to win. But on the other hand, you're thinking, okay, when is the dam going to break? When is Bailey Zappi going to break, right? Joe, I, I'm sure you had a chance to you know kind of get eyes on this one. One of the plays that I really thought that FIU kind of given themselves a chance to really kind of get in there, maybe take control of this game, Malachi Corley had a catch and fumble. And these are the type of plays that you need if you're going to pull off that upset where it's a catch and he's turning into FIU territory, probably around the 35, 40 yard line. And he's stripped by uh, Joe Perkins. And inexplicably, Joe, he chose to, and this is one of those things you could see it happening in slow motion. And luckily it was right at the angle of the, uh, the press boxes at FIU Stadium. Instead of just falling on the ball, he tried to scoop it back up and score because, I mean, had he been able to discuss, had he been able to successfully do so, excuse me, uh, there was nothing but green turf ahead of him. But the smart play was just to fall on the ball. He kicks it right to an FIU defender. But of course, FIU isn't able to take advantage, right? And those are the type of things that, again, when I talk about good teams versus bad teams, you can only give Western Kentucky so many chances. So it's not a surprise that they get 17 uh, in the second quarter. They come out dominate the third quarter. I mean, just seven sacks overall. I believe four of those sacks came in the third quarter. D'Angelo Malone, Nick Days had one. Uh, Michael Pitts, Juwan Jones, Demetrius Kane, just seven sacks from seven different people for Western. So that's impressive. But Max Bordenschlager, it's really under duress all night. The seven sacks, as I mentioned, was hurried numerous times. So it just really felt, again, once FIU kind of lost momentum heading into halftime, there wasn't really any salvaging that game. No, it's it's never easy to play behind, especially when your your offense has been as uh, you know finicky as FIU's had had uh, has been <laughs> this past uh, several weeks. And which, by the way, I don't fault any player for trying to score on a on a fumble opportunity. Um, you know, got to take your chances for glory when you get them. The, uh, but that being said, like you you definitely made a solid point there. Like the good teams are able to maintain that situational awareness a hundred percent of the time. And, you know, that just wasn't really the case for FIU in this instance, but uh, Western Kentucky, I'll, I'll give them credit for uh, they're obviously not all the way back to where they need to be in my opinion, but some significant defensive improvement the last couple of weeks, but obviously you can partially attribute that to the the quality of opponent, which, you know, I say no offense to FIU, but as we just got done talking about, uh, not the most lethal offensive attack right now. Yeah, listen, I mean, when we talked about Western Kentucky a couple of weeks ago, when they came off the UTSA loss, we said that, hey, they still have the opportunity to you know, accomplish a lot of their goals as far as CUSA East, and they won the two games they had to do. They, they had to win. They beat Old, Old Dominion on the road. They beat FIU on the road. Now they're going to get Charlotte at home, Middle Tennessee, Rice. If they get those three, then you're six and four. And all of a sudden, your destiny's in your own hand, in your own hands because you're going to face FAU and Marshall. And I don't know about you, Joe, but I still think the East is going to come down to one of those two games. And in my opinion, it's going to come down to 11-20 when they host Florida Atlantic. I'm all for it. We'll see what that game provides in terms of entertainment value as well. Uh, and it's it's coming up quickly. It's it, how 
has this season flown by so quickly? I'm sure it has something to do with how uh, chaotic the the new cycle has been, and it just seems like time is moving faster for me personally due to I've just have you know taken on an, an increase in you know freelance projects, et cetera, this fall. But does it seem like this season is going faster than we want it to, Eric? Uh, Joe, I cover FIU football, so uh, it's, it's been it's been a little bit longer. <laughs> you know what? That's that's fair. That's a mic drop. So we'll we'll move on from there. Uh, all right. So we have uh, conference realignment stuff to get to. Uh, so you know, it, it, I guess it's kind of a nice transition into uh, FIU. Uh, obviously, after the the Western Kentucky loss. Um, Head coach Butch Davis uh, getting a lot of questions about FIU's uh, stance on the realignment, you know, status of his school um, and didn't really have the answers. Apparently uh, hasn't been a ton of communication between him and the, uh, you know, leadership of the university in that regard. Um you know, referring, you know, reporters, as you can attest, Eric, to ask uh, President Mark Rosenberg and Athletic Director Pete Garcia about what is what is happening. Um, so following that whole scenario, uh, President Rosenberg put out this statement, quote, intercollegiate athletics has entered a period of change that now directly impacts FIU. Realignment of university affiliations is a reality throughout the country that impacts us directly. During the past two weeks, several members of the Conference USA have announced intentions to join other conferences. We remain in CUSA and expect to find a viable equilibrium sometime in the next few months. We believe in CUSA and we see a bright future for a strong, competitive athletics and academic cluster with existing and new members. Eric, before, you know, I'm, I know you have uh, thoughts about you know, what the timing of this statement and everything else along with it, uh, you know, says about FIU and, and where they're heading as a department regarding realignment. I, however, want to talk very briefly about the way this statement is written because it, it annoys me. <laughs> um, first of all, several members of the Conference USA, like it <laughs> – this just parts of this just read like it was written by a robot, which like, I get that it's like PR, but like, it's, it's just very, it's very odd. And then we, <laughs> we remain in CUSA and expect to find a viable equilibrium. Like, what does that even, what does that even mean? <laughs> like, I, I don't know. It, it reads like they were trying to like use big words to like seem smarter than, you know, they are <laughs> in this scenario. Like, I don't, I don't know. It, it bothers me that like, this is the you know university president of um uh equivalent of coach speak joe four degrees between the two of us and none of us will be able to figure out what the hell viable equilibrium uh is, is, is that just trying to say you're kind of find a midpoint a midground because I, I i yeah viable equilibrium uh the conference USA. that's what that my grandpappy would call a two dollar word anyway sorry <laughs> Yeah, uh, the Conference USA, that one caught me as well. So really quick, for our listeners who may not know the timeline, let me go ahead and try to bring you in here, right? So news broke, obviously, throughout last week in terms of Conference USA and potential realignment. As we talked about on the you know um, episode a few weeks ago when, when that came out from Pete Thamel and Brett McMurphy and others, I reached out to FIU uh, SID. Randy Press for a statement um, 
twice over a 24 hour period. Initially, he, he said, you know, get back with a comment and then said, and right at this time, there is no comment. Okay, uh, that's fine, right? I mean, a little surprising that there'd be no comment, especially which I think I outlined in a couple articles. Six of the eight teams that were left behind have produced some sort of statement as a university, whether that was from a university president or an athletic director. Southern Miss did not, and quite frankly, we see why. <laughs> They're heading to the Sun Belt, right? FIU was the only one that didn't. This is where this gets problematic, Joe, and I really want your thoughts on this. The game ended Saturday night, and we get down to the press room, and of course, the first questions are about football. And then, this is what happens when you don't produce a statement. Inevitably, the question comes up about conference realignment. And Butch Davis, to his credit, you can see a lot about Butch Davis this year and the coaching job or you know, over the past really, what, uh, two and a half years since the Panthers made a bowl game in 2019. He answered the question. He gave his thoughts. And uh, just to point out, he, he said you can contact Mark Rosenberg. And I believe it was uh, the board of trustees, Dean Colson. Didn't specifically outline uh, Pete Garcia. But nevertheless, he gave comment and then said, hey, if you want further on this, contact them. Of course, when you open that door, that's going to allow for more questions. There were, there were other reporters there who followed with questions. And Butch kind of shut them down in kind of that, uh, you know, Butch Davis type of way. He, he said, hey. Uh, when, when asked, you know, what kind of his thoughts were and how this would affect uh, certain things as far as, you know, the, the conference and whatnot, he said, you know, when I come out with the book, uh, you can read it all in the book. So that's uh, just kind of a Butch Davis statement. But Joe, not, only, not even 24 hours after Butch Davis addresses those questions, the first public comments from an FIU employee are made by your head coach. You can look, I would be flabbergasted if you looked in the history of realignment and you found anywhere else where the first public comments are made by your head coach unless the news of realignment dropped either during uh, practice availability or during a post-game presser not when you have five days to prepare a statement less than 24 hours after that mark rosenberg produces that statement it's not a coincidence that that statement finally emerged 24 hours after your head coach had to feel those questions. So you can say whatever you want about, you know, Butch Davis, and this is not me defending him. <laughs> it's just, I don't think there's any other way you can look at it other than he got hung out to dry. Um, it, it, inadvertently or inadvertently, who knows, time will tell. But he absolutely got hung out to dry in terms of having to be the one to feel those questions. And and and, and sorry, Joe, Rim, really quick before you jump in, and quarterback Max Bortenschlager. <laughs> those are not the people who are supposed to feel those questions. No, not at all. And I want to echo your sentiment about how Coach Davis handled the situation. He he handled it how he's supposed to, and and the best he the best he could, in my opinion, uh, given given the circumstances. And you know, it, it's like when you know a, a kid or a little or or a puppy or something like you know make a mess and then try to like you know cover it up and hope no one notices. Like as ridiculous as that concept seems, when you are a leader of a, a major, you know, state university with, with something this, uh, you know, grant. Um, that seems to be like what FIU did, and that that's wild to me. That like they had, you know, several days to at least put something out acknowledging that, you know, they they could have just put out something that's like, hey, we don't know what's going on, but for right now, we're in Conference USA, and we're going to see where the next couple of weeks takes us. Like that would have been fine, but instead. They they kind of put you know their head football coach and their student athletes in a in a bad spot and that's you know that's that's frustrating like 
you know, if, if you're in these situations as an intercollegiate athletics leader, you got to be better than that. So, you know, I, I'm not going to like tell, you know, uh, President Rosenberg and, you know, Dean, uh, Dean Colson and, and Pete Garcia how to do their jobs. But that, I, I don't know, I take issue with that. That could have been handled so much better. Yeah, you know, we won't spend too much more time on this topic, but it's just, I think it's interesting. The other comment that, you know, really kind of struck me uh, being part of that presser was Butch Davis said, and here's the direct quote that Mike Oresco said, excuse me. So Mike Oresco said uh, earlier in the week, we're adding schools and not only share our philosophy of competition at the highest level, but have shown they're willing to make the necessary investments to do so. So Butch Davis, when asked and when, when giving his, you know, kind of thoughts on how the whole realignment thing happened, he said, and quote, you saw what the commissioner of the AAC, Oresco, said about why they didn't choose other schools. Someone sent that me, someone sent me that article because as you guys know, I'm not that big on Twitter and social media, but I saw the list of things they wanted from schools they had chosen and I could understand. And there was a level of resignment in his voice when he said that, which is quite frankly, and this isn't to bash FIU because they're not the only school in this scenario, but in, in relation to that, it's, hey, the, we've talked about this, Joe, the schools that were chosen, their facilities are quite frankly, among the tops in G5 football. So that you can take away from that what you want in terms of, you know, FIU and their situation. But all in all, as you said, and, and as someone who was there, it, like you said, you could have just put out a generic statement. And that way, I believe Western Kentucky with Tyson Helton, he just read the statement once and said, hey, any other questions? I'm going to refer you to, to that statement right there. That eliminates the scenario where your head coach has to be the first person to make the statements and your student athlete is, followed and has the, the potential of being asked questions as well. So simple as that. <laughs> there, there are plenty of examples here of how to handle this situation and uh, what FIU did here, not the best. Um, but, you know, along with some schools like FIU and Louisiana Tech, apparently um, basically just riding it out with COSA, seeing what happens. Uh, some other schools are on the move. Southern Miss, Marshall, and Old Dominion, are looking to be added to the Sun Belt. Uh, Southern Miss are actually holding a press conference uh, a little bit later this afternoon where, um, I mean, it's not a secret. They're going to announce that they're joining the Sun Belt Conference. Uh, Old Dominion, uh, you know, nothing has come out from them, I believe, uh, to make it official just yet, but uh, all the reports uh, from uh, places like The Athletic as well as uh, Action Network are uh, looking towards that, uh, along with, Maybe James Madison. We'll see. And then uh, Marshall looking like their official announcement is probably going to come on Thursday or Friday this week as they wait for uh, a new president to officially be, um, you know, put in place. Um, they've been looking for a new one for a while. Uh, but, you know, I, I don't really see a scenario where they turn down uh, an invitation from the Sun Belt at this point. So uh, with CUSA, this leaves them with FIU, Louisiana Tech, UTEP. Western Kentucky and MTSU right now. And who knows how long those schools are going to stay. Yeah, Joe, you know, we talk about kind of the fluid nature of what's going on right now. And that's why we chose to address it on the episode, this episode, because as you mentioned, we don't know if seven days from now, things may or may not be different. This is kind of something that I want to talk about with you a little bit and, and kind of gain your thoughts. Or I guess I'll open it to you first. Do you kind of have any thoughts as far as where CUSA should go? And we've seen some of the names mentioned, but just one overall, you know, we've seen Liberty apparently has said no, and I, we won't get too much into that situation, but you can say, you know, 
maybe it's solid on CUSA that that uh that won't happen. But um, some of the options that they had looked at, quite frankly, the American chose to take Judy McLeod's proposed idea and just say, we'll do it on our own. So that kind of left them void of options. But just wondering kind of your thoughts and where they may turn, because I know I have a couple ideas of where CUSA could turn, um, depending on what some of the potential schools listed uh, as far as options say, uh, yay or nay. Yeah. Um... It, they are in – I do not envy this position for, for them at all. Um, I mean, personally, I, I'd i be surprised if uh, UMass wasn't added to this. And I don't really see what – there's not much value that UMass really adds uh, <laughs> right now outside of a, a couple – you know, non-revenue sports, um, you know, men's basketball, they'll, they'll get back, but football is pretty rough right now. Um, that being said, given they kind of already have that FBS, you know, infrastructure, you know, I, I can't really, you know, imagine COSA is in a position to be picky in that regard. Um, maybe football only uh, membership with, with UConn. I would be what ideally what I would like to happen is some of these FCS schools that have just really done a fantastic job, uh, you know, building their program and building their fan base over the last couple of decades, get a shot to join the FBS ranks if, if it makes sense for them. But, you know, I think fit is, is everything. I think they've thrown out Sam Houston state, um, which I guess kind of makes sense. They won a national championship last year. Very good football program. A very you know uh, a passionate fan base that attracts you know uh, their attendance is great. Um, so I can kind of see that. I know one of the names that keeps getting tossed around is is Tarleton State, and they're a very new team. Uh, they they just made the jump from D two to D one last year during all the the COVID craziness. So. If they were to make the jump uh, to FBS, I don't know how uh, long they would have to wait to actually join a conference because there's a probationary period from when you jump to D2 to D1, and then there's another probationary period from when you jump from FCS to FBS. And I believe it's a two-year probationary period when you jump from D2 to D1 before you can join a conference and then there's a couple more. So, you know, if they did get Tarleton state, does I, you know, this is an honest question. Does that mean they have to wait like three years? And then, then at that point, like that, that doesn't necessarily solve the immediacy of CUSA's problem. And then, you know, we, they, I think someone, I think kind of half joking throughout Montana, <laughs> which would be a <laughs> lot of fun for me as someone up here in the, in the Pacific Northwest and, you know, Montana and in all, really all the big sky, like th those are some fun atmospheres. Um, but that being said with how small those markets are <laughs> um, and how remote those markets are, uh, Eric, if you ever, if you ever come out here, we might have to take a, you know, a, we'll have to go to a Portland state game. Um, even though they, they play in a literal high school, which is, it's, it's rough. But sometimes the coach gives you free beer, so that's fun. Um, but we could maybe road trip to, like, Shaney, Washington, to see Eastern Washington. That's fun. But anyway, it, you know, with some of these big sky schools, I, I don't really see how that's viable. Uh, but I don't know. Stranger things have happened, um, especially just considering how, uh, you know, Mon the population of Montana is very, very small. 
just as a state, right? So I don't know how that would work. Um, but then, you know, I, and then I, I know you're also of this persuasion. I think there's several HBCU programs who are, you know, deserving, namely Florida A&M with, you know, how good their attendance is and uh, how, you know, the, just, they just play an exciting brand of football. I would, I would love to see uh, A&M get an invite in that regard. And then, uh, you know, Jackson State, they're not amazing, but um, from a branding perspective, I can definitely see why they'd be attractive to someone, uh, you know, like uh, CUSA leadership in this scenario, especially since they have Deion Sanders as their head coach right now and are doing some very interesting things um, just in terms of marketing themselves as a program. So, uh, and then I, I think also Matt Brown mentioned Missouri State, which I can see, and they offer a lot outside of football as well. So, um, that's my long rambling answer of, of where I think they could go. Well, first off, any opportunity to go out there, shout out to Tyson Rogers, uh, Big Sky Country. Anytime we uh, get a chance to do that, that would be um, phenomenal. I would not complain at the opportunity to watch a little Big Sky football because that would allow us to watch Asher O'Hara again. So that would be pretty fun. But uh, I'll say this, Joe. I genuinely think, and we'll see what happens with the New Mexico states, Tarleton states. I think uh, that'd be something to keep an eye on, you know, because if the CUSA teams were leaving, let's say they shuffle out by 2023 or 24, I think it'd be closer to 23, maybe that could play a factor in the Tarleton state kind of, you know, coming in um, in the probationary period. We'll see. I do think you have to take a strong look at kind of fulfilling that. Texas slash Southwest geographical environment because you have La Tech still in play, in place, excuse me. And if you're able to hang on, first off, I think we both agree. The number one role needs to be convincing Middle Tennessee and Western Kentucky to stay because if they're gone by the time we're doing this episode next week, uh, then we got a whole nother issue, right? So that needs to be the number one sell job. But in addition to that, you can create some sort of regionality and I have been to Stephenville, Texas. I've been to uh, Tarleton State. That would be a unique trip, uh, especially for the folks coming from Miami uh, to Tarleton State. That'd be interesting. But nevertheless, um, that could be a thing. As far as the HBCUs, and I wrote about this in my three things, we learned piece in CUSA, I do think they take a strong look at HBCUs, mainly because of this, Joe. When Conference USA... And feel, please feel free to correct me if I'm wrong if I say anything that sounds you know off or I'm, I'm erring anyway. When Conference USA made their selections for the 2013 and 2014 seasons, they really invested in markets first, right? With FIU and FAU, Middle Tennessee, um, trying to get you know Charlotte, trying to get the kind of markets that were growing and also uh, growing schools, right? Well, you don't have that luxury this time around because a lot of those programs that you thought would hit they're still growing and quite frankly the american whatever peak or ceiling they're going to reach they're going to reach it under the american right you lose a blue blood program like southern miss that's been with the pro with the conference since it's since its inception excuse me in 1996 and then potentially losing those strong football passionate fan bases like marshall and southern miss and others right and then another growing one in old dominion so i think if you turn to hbcus you have two things that you can establish a fan base and a tradition that is very passionate about football, which is something that, quite frankly, you still had to grow into with the FIUs, FAUs, I'd even say ODUs, um, Middle Tennessee's, Western Kentuckys. 
they're they're there when they win and they get excited. But in terms of just year around passion about having a a committed fifteen to thirty thousand people who are willing to say on Saturdays we're going to watch football, you have that with HBCUs. In specificity, as you mentioned with Florida A and M, they're averaging just shade under sixteen thousand fans per game. And that's without Deion Sanders as their head coach, right? We know with Jackson State, they're averaging 33,000 change. Jackson State's always been a traditionally, you know, good HBCU team, or, or in terms of uh, passion, I should say, maybe not necessarily on-field results, but they've always had a strong fan base. But that's been kind of, you know, increased sevenfold when you talk about bringing primetime and Deion Sanders, right? So how sustainable is that? Who knows? Maybe Deion could love the HBCU life and be there 10 years. We don't know, but you don't necessarily want to uh, choose the program based on that. With Florida A&M, they haven't had Deion Sanders as their head coach, but they consistently fill Bragg Memorial Stadium there in Tallahassee. And then you take a look at, you know, and, and for those of you listening, I'm not saying to choose multiple HBCUs. I don't know how sustainable that is because for those of you who may not be familiar with HBCUs, in terms of student enrollment, <laughs> um, I, I guess there's no other way to really dance around this post-integration, uh, like, enrollment HBCUs kind of gone down right so you don't really have um i believe florida a&m at 10,000 students has the largest student enrollment right a majority of hbcus their student enrollment runs about the size of a large high school uh between three and five thousand students so i'm not saying you can go and choose seven hbcus and save the conference but i do think if we're talking about top tier programs and if you're going to go on the fcs level it would be a mistake not to consider one or two um uh, among the hbc ranks Completely agree in that regard. And look, this is, you know, a territory that, you know, very few, if any, really uh, collegiate conferences uh, have, have gone into in terms of trying to basically rebuild from the ground up uh, with the exception of a few blocks who are, let's face it, uh, stuck in CUSA at this point. Um so you got to do something innovative and something maybe a little unprecedented with the addition of some of these schools. So, you know, from as a fan, I think it's going to be fun to see what happens. That being said, if this little experiment doesn't work out by adding some of these, you know, uh, you know, teams like teams from the HBCU ranks or a Montana or a Tarleton state or whatever, if it doesn't work out, then, uh, you know, bye-bye CUSA at this point. But, you know, in terms of, like, CUSA giving it one last ride, let's see if this works. Like, it's going to produce some entertaining storylines and some fun things to write about. So that's that's the way I'm choosing to look at it as, you know, the underdog dynasty, one of the underdog dynasty people right now. But I do not envy anybody who's still in CUSA or maybe working for the CUSA league office who has to make these kind of decisions right now. Listen, we are in a complete agreement there because it's a, it's a no-win situation. You're essentially trying to, uh, um, you know, save the conference and at least this is the football part of it. Um, or maybe just as a whole, you're trying to save, you know, uh, it's, it's, it's really a, a tough situation as a whole. So definitely can agree with you there. All right. And then I think outside of realignment, there's one little bit of uh, news, rumor, whatever you want to call it, that we should probably talk about. Uh, with the firing of Matt Wells at Texas Tech, that opens the door for UTSA head coach Jeff Trailer. Uh, potentially, obviously, fits a lot of the criteria that uh, Texas Tech, as well as the other Texas schools, really want uh, in terms of background and recruiting expertise. Um, so far, 
doesn't look like uh, trailers is focused on that. That being said, I, I don't think he would come out and say like, oh yeah, no, I'd, I'd take that in a heartbeat because that'd be stupid of him. But, <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's a possibility that UTSA is going to have to deal with. And, you know, at, at a certain point, they're going to have to show trailer the money if they want to keep it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting, right? I mean, can they, I don't know if there's any more money to pony up, but put it to you this way, even if there is, you're not really going to compete with what Texas tech can offer. And I'm not sitting here saying that Jeff Trail is out the door, right? And as you mentioned, it would be silly of him to say, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm gone, right? Unless he truly had taken the job. And then it'd be truly honorable if, you know, he's like, hey, guys, uh, my heart is always with you guys. And, and you know, I uh, love what this opportunity is able to do for me, but I'm going to take that role. Then I'd have a lot of respect for him if, you know, he's kind of come to that conclusion and if an offer had been made. But this is kind of the way I'm looking at it, right? And I'd seen two sides of the coin. I believe Jared Kelm has pointed this out on Twitter. You're talking about someone who is that was a longtime Texas high school head coach at Gilmer High and stayed there for a long time and showed loyalty. And certainly there may have been bigger opportunities there, right? But can you tell a guy who's a native Texan who I don't know what his dream job may or may not be, but he certainly has done more than well for himself at UTSA. And Joe, I think it's important to remember his trajectory to being a head coach, right? He wasn't someone who started out in his mid-20s and was some hot shot, you know, assistant who, you know, did this and that. Let's run it down. 86 to 89, he played the Stephen F. Austin. From 89 to 92, he's an assistant at Big Sandy High. 93 to 90, 93 to 99, he's assistant at Jacksonville High in Texas. For 15 seasons, he's the head coach at Gilmer. Then he gets, which I'm sure at this point may have been his dream job to coach the University of Texas as a special teams and tight ends coach. He goes to SMU in 2017 as assistant head coach and running backs, uh, 18 and 19, assistant head coach and running backs at Arkansas, and then comes to UTSA at 2020. At 53 years old, I'm not saying that there won't be more opportunities. He's certainly not, you know, a decade or such older. But when you look at his, his career trajectory, it, doesn't this feel to you like you got to strike when the iron's hot? Yes. I, I mean, if that, you know, if we're talking about what coaches that go from the G5 to the P5 have done traditionally. And yeah, like you said, Texas Tech has a lot of resources. And if this is what Trailer wants, which I don't fault him if he does, if he wants a big paycheck, then Texas Tech can absolutely give that to him. That being said, you know, <laughs> The re- I don't know. Texas Tech just, to me personally, and maybe this is a little hot takey, just doesn't seem like that attractive of a job, personally, for any reason other than than money. I mean, you look at the type of offense that Trailer has been able to run very successfully at UTSA, as well as some of the other places where he's been an assistant, and it's very balanced. Um Texas Tech, obviously, much more, you know, air ready, uh, dating back a, a long time. And, you know, I'm not saying, like, your offensive identity lives and dies with who your school is. It usually sticks with the coach, but it, it just doesn't seem like an amazing fit for him. Uh, plus, like, Lubbock, Texas, man, I don't know. If you really want to wake up every day and, like, you know, look out, your, look out at your backyard that is an oil field, <laughs> then more power to you. But... I don't know. UTSA, like money or not, just seems like a, a much better place to be until uh, a job that maybe makes a little more sense uh, 
arises for Jeff Trailer. But that's that's just me. People are free to tell me I'm wrong. As someone who recently spent 24 hours in Lubbock, Texas, I will not let you slander the great name of Lubbock, Texas, in terms of what may be out there. Listen, I, it, it was it was a cool little town, but I, I was only for 24 hours. I only covered a game, so I I, I can't necessarily refute what you're saying. But uh, it, it 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 surprised me. It was a little bigger than I expected. I thought it was going to be tumbleweed, um, and far from it. Quite frankly, it was, it was I was impressed. But nevertheless, I think you make a fair point when talking about Texas Tech. Um, this is a debate I actually have with FIU SID Christina Anderson all the time. She's a Texas Tech graduate, and you know she kind of is of the feeling that their ceiling is higher than eight and five, or nine and four. And my <laughs> feeling is. I understand if you think, especially in the new Big 12, that you should be winning that league. Um, but at the same point in time, when you kind of look at Tech Tech as a job, outside of, you know, flying tortillas and the masked rider, I, I don't necessarily know uh, what has made Texas Tech kind of notable outside of the handful of years that, you know, under Mike Leach and Michael Crabtree was there. They, you know, were a top 15, top 10 team. But I don't think, it, I guess it depends, Joe, on what your expectations are at Texas Tech, right? And that's that's not a Jeff Trailer thing. That's a them thing. If the expectation is uh, top 25 and we're going to compete in the Big 12, especially the new Big 12, then you take that job. But if the expectation is we're going to be top 15 and we're going to win the new Big 12 every year, uh, then yeah, you might it might behoove Jeff Trailer to listen to your point. Right. And like, I mean, this is more a criticism of, you know, college football fans in general and not necessarily of Texas Tech. You know, everybody thinks their team is is special, and sometimes they're just, you know, they're just not. Things change, obviously. the The landscape of college football fluctuates extremely rapidly. But you know, to to sit there and say that you know your program ceiling is you know ten and two or eleven and one or, or whatever, especially in a, a you know as competitive a landscape as it's shaping up to be. I don't know, maybe, maybe cool it a little bit. And and like you said, if I think with, with Jeff trailer, if it's not a, you know, opportunity where he can, you know, immediately make them a contender. I don't know why you, you bother because UTSA is, you know, headed to a, you know, a league in the American where, uh, you know, I, I, again, we've talked about how the, the new American, not necessarily what the American was with UCF, Cincinnati, Houston, et cetera. But, if they keep going the way they're going and he keeps recruiting the way he's recruiting, uh, UTSA has a chance to, you know, be a leader in the new American. So uh, again, it all goes to the same point of like money or not. I, if I'm Jeff trailer, I maybe just kind of wait and see who else <laughs> really wants my. So with that, then let's jump into some previews for week nine, uh, kicking things off on Saturday at 2 p.m. Eastern Rice hosting North Texas in Houston. Um, you know, this is the thing we were just talking about, Eric. It's on ESPN three rice is uh, actually favored by two and a half heading into this game. Uh, so who knows? Things might be, uh, you know, turning around for, for rice a little bit here. Um, and I'm going to go ahead and pick the owls for this one based on what North Texas has shown defensively as of late uh and rice keeps this offensive momentum that they built based on the uh the win against uab last week going then yeah i think they they can maybe even get to bowl eligibility but we'll see uh but for this game picking rice i don't think north texas has much left in the tank here 
This one is truly tough for me, Joe, because North Texas, as we've talked about ad nauseum, hasn't been able to stop anybody. But it's not like Rice has been the most consistent offensive team really since Mike Bloomberg took over. Sure. And, you know, going back towards the later end of the David Bailiff era. I'm going to go with Rice just because I think their defense is much more sustainable. You know, when in doubt, I'm taking defense. Defense travels. So give me Rice, but I do think it'll be close. Then we have Marshall hosting FIU. Uh, Marshall minus 21 and a half for this uh, 3.30 kickoff game uh, on stadium. I'm picking Marshall. Um, I don't really see any reason to to doubt them at this point. Uh, Inconsistency issues aside, Based on the way that Western Kentucky was able to penetrate FIU's offensive line and really pressure Max Portenschlager last week, I think Marshall is going to be able to do that even more so uh, based on what we've seen out of them so far. Uh, So give me the thundering hurt here. Yeah, Joe, that is the scary part of it, right? We've talked about a quarterback in Max Portenschlager that has certainly been pressured, especially over the last few weeks. You look at the Marshall defense and Guys like Eli Neal and T.J. Johnson. Eli Neal has six sacks on the year in addition to his 53 tackles. One of the better linebackers in all of Conference USA. I will be there live. First opportunity to check out Huntington and Jones C. Edwards. And I do expect that Marshall will get the victory. And then uh, at the same time slot, uh, 3.30 Eastern on CBS Sports Network, we have Old Dominion hosting Louisiana Tech. Uh, Texters favored by five and a half heading into this game. Uh, you know, this is going to be an interesting uh, contest. I do think it's going to be, you know, a one-score game, as that uh, as that Vegas line indicates. I think Louisiana Tech able to uh, salvage a win here and improve to three and five, uh, based on what we've seen out of Old Dominion. Um, some very good things offensively. That being said, defense definitely needs a lot of work, and um, you know, un- unfortunately for them, uh, offense is Louisiana Tech's strength at the moment. So we'll see what the what the score line shakes out to be in Norfolk. Joe, give me ODU. I think this is the week, especially if Hayden Wolf is going to be the starter because he'll have a full week of preparation. That's not to say he didn't, you know, get the the starters reps two weeks ago when he started, but you get the bye week, you know, he can have another week firmly in trenches, the start at least for the foreseeable future. And by all accounts, head coach Ricky Ronnie has said that he's not going to flip-flop guys. If someone's going to start, they're going to start for the foreseeable future. So there should be Hayden Wolf start. I think ODU has played really tough, really hard under Ronnie. And right now, Tech just is in a bad way defensively. So give me ODU. Then also in the 3.30 Eastern time slot on ESPN Plus, Middle Tennessee hosting Southern Miss, MTSU favored by 13 and a half in this one. Uh, I see no reason to pick against the Blue Raiders. Uh, Chase Cunningham playing very well, 16 touchdowns so far. Uh, Southern Miss dealing with some injuries. and, uh, you know, I, I think they'll have a little bit of a boost based on, you know, a step forward for the program by by joining the SBC or the announcement that they're going to join the SBC rather. Uh, but right now, MTSU is a, a much healthier and a much more talented team, in my opinion. It's kind of rinse and repeat for me, Joe. The same things that they were able to accomplish last week, they need to be able to accomplish this week. Chase Cunningham, keep the consistency going. Get a hundred. That's just my challenge. Get 120 plus yards in some form or fashion from the running backs alone and perform well defensively. You know, Greg, great Reed Blankenship, the top safety duo in all of CUSA. I think they'll perform well. And I think MTSU gets the win. Then at four Eastern, we have Western Kentucky hosting Charlotte on ESPN plus uh, WKU favored by 17 and a half heading into this contest. 
Uh, with Western Kentucky, like and Charlotte, actually, both these defenses are uh, you know inconsistent, and they've kind of shown that over the last several weeks. Uh, but they they have two quarterbacks who are you know great leaders. Uh, but Bailey Zappi and, and Jarrett Stearns, that connection has been so so productive. Um, you know, based on what Charlotte's been able to do defensively, I, I really just have my doubts that they're going to be able to keep pace with Western unless they just, you know, have some sort of, you know, crazy, you know, swing of luck in terms of being able to force turnovers and then control the time of possession, uh, you know, with that running back by committee approach and just not turn the ball over. Um, that being said, you know, it, it's hard to pick against Western Kentucky when they've just, they've been so prolific. Um, but based on, I don't know. I think this game is going to be closer than 17 and a half, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Western Kentucky makes a lot of mistakes, unfortunately, especially early in the game. So, uh, you know, if Charlotte can play a full game, then they'll keep it close. But I do think Western finishes this ultimately. Wow, Joe, I'm not going to lie. I'm surprised at that line, 17 and a half. That's way too much in my opinion. I, I think Western Kentucky wins kind of how I opened the show. I think if we're talking about a quarterback duel, Chris Reynolds and Bailey Zappi, and this is any slide on Chris Reynolds, but I think Bailey Zappi, a, the offensive weapons around him are certainly solid. It's not to say that Reynolds doesn't have his own tandem in Vic Tucker and Grant DeBose, but I just think that Bailey Zappi is more equipped to win that quarterback duel. And I think Western Kentucky be more primed to make more defensive stops. So give me the tops, but certainly not by 17 and a half. Then to close out the slate, we have uh, an interesting contest between FAU and UTEP in Boca. ESPN Plus, 6 o'clock Eastern. Uh, Owls favored by 11 and a half against the six and one minors. This is going to be, in my opinion, the true test of how good UTEP's defense is. Um, you know, I, I, my gut says the owls based on what they were able to do, you know, last week, that being said, consistency is just such an issue for, for FAU. So I'm really looking forward to watching this game just because, a, if UTEP pulls off this upset, then they will be seven and one next week as they get ready to host UTSA. I, I know the CUSA Twitter folks are really trying to get uh, College Game Day to go to that game. Good luck with that. But uh, you know, UTEP would need to win this first, and I just I, I have a hard time seeing them getting it done on the road here. Joe, an interesting stat that I think I cannot remember if it was Adrian Broadus or. Steve Kopwitz, who tweeted out first, but UTEP has never, I repeat, never won a game on the East Coast. 0-25-1. That just is a very surprising stat to me. Now, granted, of course, you know, in their history, they've played a lot of games, not on the East Coast, but still, the fact that they've never won one is pretty shocking. I think this ball game is going to be really close. I think UTEP is going to challenge uh, FAU, maybe more than some FAU fans may believe, but at the end of the day, FAU... In terms of talent, if they play up to their potential, they should win this one. It'd be interesting to see. I kind of hope that, you know, game day, <laughs> we certainly would love to have them out there. UTEP don't know necessarily if that's going to happen. But in terms of this matchup, I think FAU wins, but I think it'll be very close. As do I. I think that's going to be that's going to be the contest that I think gets the most eyeballs out of, uh, you know, the Western or out of the Conference USA slate this week. Um, but with that, then we'll leave you all until next week. We'll have a lot to talk about as the realignment saga continues to rage on, as well as uh, recaps from this week. And uh, we'll preview week 10 next week. 
how are we on week 10 already? Oh, well, whatever. Time is time is weird. Uh, thank you all so much for listening. If you want to check us out on Twitter at underdog dynasty uh, at Joe Ohio underscore at Eric C Henry underscore uh, subscribe on Apple. If you haven't already, we're on Spotify as well. Uh, and we'll be back real soon. Happy football watching everybody. Stay safe. Out there.